Well, as we've talked about, there are a lot of perspectives on the end times. There are those who would say, as I mentioned this morning, the mid-tribulation rapture, you go through half of the tribulation, and then, and then the church is raptured. And there are others who say, no, you, the rapture happens, or the second coming happens at the end of the tribulation, and the church goes through the whole thing. And then there are those who would say, as I've said over and over, and I believe it's the most biblical approach, is that the church is caught up before the tribulation begins. Before that time of wrath begins. Now, the reason I keep coming back to that position is the, it's the preponderance of the evidence. And I mentioned this just briefly. Eric had a really good question last week. Um, right now, it escapes me exactly what it was, but it was a good question. <laughs> and I answered it just briefly, but I, I wanted to back up and, and say this again. When you're looking at any perspective on the scriptures, you need to take the whole counsel of the Word of God into account. Be sure you don't hang your hopes or your theology on one verse or on one section, but see how it plays out throughout all of Scripture. And that, to me, is what lands me in the positions that I find myself in. And when we're studying the, Revel the book of Revelation, that's why I see it as literal, because it's not only what's written in this book, but it's how it's supported in so many other places that we come to the position that we come to. This morning we talked about the fact that there are many trumpets in the Bible. We looked at two of them today directly related to God. The first trumpet and the last trumpet. That first trumpet that God sounded at Sinai, it was his voice, but it was a trumpet blast that terrified the people as they gathered around the base of Mount Sinai. It's the first time the trumpet is even mentioned in the Bible, and using that principle of first mention, we call it the first trumpet. Numbers chapter 10 talks about those two trumpets, the two silver trumpets that the Israelites were to make. And we kind of made the comparison, two silver trumpets for the Israelites and how they use those trumpets and the fact that there is a first trumpet and the Bible talks about specifically the last trumpet. The last trumpet. But it's important to understand, as I said this morning, that the first trumpet and the last trumpet talked about in Scripture are not the trumpets talked about in Revelation chapter 8 and then finishing on over in Revelation chapter 11, which we'll see in a few weeks. But how do we know? How do we know that those are two different trumpets from the trumpet judgments talked about where we're going tonight? Revelation chapter 8 verse 6 tells us, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Paul makes a very clear distinction in his letter to, uh, to the Thessalonians and also his letter to the Corinthian church. He makes a clear distinction that the one sounding the last trumpet is God and not angels. And that alone is a very um, important piece of information. Again, I'll read it to you. 1 Thessalonians 4.16 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Paul talks about this again in 1 Corinthians 15.52. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. The last trumpet. And he again describes the rapture being caught up and changed and made imperishable instantaneously. Revelation chapter 4 verse 1. John in his experience said after these things I looked and behold the door standing open in heaven. The first voice which I had heard like the sound of a trumpet speaking with me said come up here. And we know that first voice that he heard back in Revelation chapter 1 was the voice of Jesus Christ. And the sound was Revelation 1 and Revelation chapter 4. It was the sound of a trumpet. And so there's the trumpet sound of the voice of God, first and last, spoken in Scripture. And there are the trumpets which the angels will blow, again, in the last half of Revelation chapter 8. 
But the last trumpet, the last trumpet, according to the Apostle Paul, is the voice of God. And that's an important and clear distinction that we need to make. Tonight, we'll begin to listen to the sounding of the seven trumpets, sounded again by seven angels as the trumpet judgments begin. But let me just help you understand this, make sure this is clear to you. It's important as you read from this point on in the book of Revelation and in the tribulation to understand how things come about. There are three sections in the tribulation that you can see very clearly in this book. The first section is what we would call the seal judgments. There are seven of them. We've looked at them. Beginning in Revelation chapter 6, the seal judgments. Remember, John saw that there was a scroll, and there were seven seals on the scroll, and he wept because nobody was able to open or worthy to open up that scroll. And so the scroll was going to remain unopened, and John wept and wept over this. Understanding how important that scroll was or is the title deed to planet earth. But the lamb was found worthy. Remember that? The lamb was worthy to break open those seals. Now when he broke those seals, the breaking of each seal resulted in some kind of catastrophic event. The very first one being the release of a rider on a white horse who we pointed out and talked about as Antichrist. Another Christ. A false messiah. How do we know that? Because as the next seals are broken, following on that rider on the white horse came war and death and famine and terror. All these things followed that false messiah. But remember, and it's important, the one who had complete control over it all was Jesus. Is Jesus. Will be Jesus. He's the one who had the authority to break those seals. So those are the seal judgments. And it ends with the terrifying wrath of the Lamb. The very end of Revelation chapter 6, even the people alive on earth at the time are hiding in the rocks and caves and they're crying, fall on us, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. His wrath. So those are the seal judgments, first set of judgments. Again, there are three sets. Each set has seven judgments in it, as it's written in the book. So the seal judgments come first. The last judgment or the last seal opens up the trumpet judgments. The last of the trumpet judgments will open up the last set of judgments called the bowl judgments. I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but here they are again, chapter 6, the seal judgments, chapter 8, where we begin tonight, the seven trumpet judgments. And you will see how these seven trumpet judgments indicate are an incredible picture of global nuclear war. Now, if you're wondering, wow, Rick, are you just making, drawing too much of an illusion? I'll let you make up your own mind as we go through it tonight. I believe you'll see these things very clearly. And chapter 16, then finally, when we get there, we'll come to the last set of seven judgments, the seven bowl judgments. Bowls that are poured out. And we will see at that point the final unleashing of all God's wrath and fury on a Christ-rejecting sinful world. And it's stunning. And nothing compares to when we get to those last seven judgments. It's horrific what will happen on planet Earth. So three sets of judgments. Seven judgments in each set. Seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments. And that makes up the tribulation. So it's pretty easy to follow along and understand as we study. Now... Tonight, before we get to the trumpet judgments, I do want to travel back in time a little bit and talk about some other trumpets. Because this is not the first time where seven trumpets are used to judge. There's another time in the history of Scripture, and remember this, for every New Testament principle, there is an Old Testament picture. John wrote with these things in mind. He was writing to first century Christians, most of whom at that time were Jews, who had become Christians. 
Jews who had translated in their faith as they should have, following Jesus as their promised Messiah. And these Jews would have had a very strong working knowledge of the Old Testament, the New Testament not even hardly having been written. Some letters were circulating, some books were being passed around, but by the time John was writing, the Old Testament scriptures still would have been the primary scriptures studied in the early church. So there are things that they would have seen, and what's interesting is the recipients of the Revelation in the first century, had they compared papyri, had they taken out scrolls and looked at them side by side, could have seen an amazing similarity between the seven trumpet judgments and the book of Joshua. The book of Joshua, which we're going to get to actually not, not too far from now. We'll get to the book of Joshua pretty soon, I'm hoping within the next year or so. But a few things to consider about the book of Joshua that are important when you think about trumpets. Number one, you've got to consider the code name. For the code name of the book of Joshua is Joshua, which is the Hebrew name Yeshua, which is Jesus' name. So even the name of the book is the same name as the Messiah. And Joshua, as he brings the children of Israel into the promised land, in many ways is a picture of Jesus. The book of Joshua shows us over and over again things that Jesus would later do. Ways that Jesus would act. And Jesus himself, by the way, is present in the book of Joshua. You'll see that in just a few minutes. So the code name is Joshua, or Yeshua, the name of Jesus. The content of the book of Joshua is it's all about Joshua and the people's return to the land of promise. Now think about this. It's a land that, while the people were away, had been illegitimately hijacked. Does that sound familiar? A land that, as the Jewish people are, are now being brought back into the land under the authority of Joshua, it was a land that was overrun by the Canaanites and the Amorites and the Hittites and all the ites that we've talked about so many times. But let's connect some dots tonight. A quick history of the promised land. Think about this. It began as God promised the land to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The land covenant. I just talked about this at lunch with some friends today. That land covenant. God promised them and it's described in the Bible as 300,000 square miles. And at the height of their glory. Does anyone know how many miles, how many square miles did Israel ever hold in history? It was 30,000. 30,000 out of 300,000. So Israel at its best, at its height under Solomon, had 10% of what God promised. They're going to have the rest. They're going to have the rest. It was promised to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, who his name was changed to Israel. He had the 12 sons, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then God led Jacob and the sons down to Egypt. Remember, he sent Joseph on ahead. Joseph went down to Egypt in slavery because of his brother's action, but it was still the work of God. So that there would be a place prepared so when famine struck in the promised land, Jacob and sons could move down into Egypt where they stayed for 400 years. Genesis chapter 15, one of the most critical chapters to know and to have studied in the Bible. Genesis chapter 15, beginning in verse 13, God said to Abram, Know for certain, and I'm going to, by the way, throw out verses and, and start reading, and you catch up as quick as you can, because I want to, there's a lot to cover, and I don't want to slow down for it tonight. Genesis 15:13. God said to Abram, Know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. But I will also judge the nation whom they serve. That would be Egypt. And afterward, they will come out with many possessions. Exactly what happened. 
As for you, Abraham, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You'll be buried at a good old age. Verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. Where was God talking? They were in Hebron at the time. In the promised land. They'll return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete or full. So, Jacob and sons, down into Egypt. God promised that's exactly what would happen. Told Abraham it's going to be 400 years. And a reminder, it wasn't just 400 years for the people to be in Egypt. It was 400 years for the Canaanites and all the otherites to repent of their wickedness. It was 400 years of mercy on the part of God before he brought his divine wrath, his judgment down on the people living in the land by bringing Israel back to pronounce his judgment. Finally, God led Israel back to a land which was rightfully theirs. How do we know the land was rightfully theirs? Well, God gave it to them, the Bible tells us. We just read Genesis 15. But it's also interesting to note, Psalm 24, verse 1 says, The earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and those who dwell in it, the Lord can give to whoever He wants, whatever He wants. It's His to give. And the Bible is clear that He gave it to Israel, and He gave it to them as an everlasting covenant. Well, the next thing that happened, the children of Israel returned to the land, but the land was usurped. It was a usurped land, a land that had been taken, a land that that should have belonged to them, but was covered over by, at that time, at that time, all the Canaanites. Well, the same thing happened. As the Israelites, as as the Jewish people began moving back into the land of Israel in our time, it was a land usurped, and continues to be a land usurped. Every time Israel gives up land, it is usurping, gaining the authority of God that said that is not, it's not even Israel's to give up. It's Israel's to have because God gave it to them. But it is not land that's supposed to be divided and given up. We've talked a lot about that. So God finally, he ordained Joshua to retake the land and to clear it out of its sin. Now check this out. Back in Genesis chapter 15, look at this. Verse 18. On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given this land. From the river of Egypt, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, that's where we get 300,000 square miles. If you go from one river to the next, that area in there is 300,000 square miles. And then verse 19, and watch this, you might even count this, the Kenite and the Kenizzite, the Kadmonite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Rephaim, that'd be six of them, the Amorite, seven, the Canaanite, eight, the Girgashite, and the Jebusite, ten nations. Now keep this in mind. Ten nations are described by God as being in the land. And God's saying to Abraham, or to Abram at the time, these ten nations are in this land, but this land is your land, Abraham, not theirs. I will give the land that right now they dwell in. I will give it to you. Ten nations. Turn in your Bibles to Joshua chapter 3. Joshua chapter 3. Long about verse 10. Joshua 3.10. I'll skip back up to verse 9 while you're still flipping there. Joshua 3 verse 9 says, Then Joshua said to the sons of Israel, Come here and hear the words of the Lord your God. Now listen. Joshua said, By this you shall know that the living God is among you. 
and that he will assuredly dispossess from before you the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Hivite, the Parasite, the Girgashite, the Amorite, and the Jebusite. Uh-oh. Seven nations. God said, I'm going to dispossess ten nations. But now Joshua is saying God's going to dispossess seven nations. Well, why? What's the difference? Why did that happen? Okay, by the time Joshua led the children of Israel back into the land to reclaim it, three nations had already been wiped out. Three nations no longer existed. There were ten. Now at the time of Joshua's return, there are only seven. Now listen carefully to this. Daniel chapter 7, verse 7. I'll just read this to you. Daniel starts to give a prophecy. Daniel, which is the book of Daniel, the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament book of Revelation. Daniel is the book of Revelation of the Old Testament. And Daniel writes, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrifying and extremely strong, and it had large iron teeth. And it devoured and crushed and trampled down the remainder with its feet. And while it was different from, and it was different from all the other beasts before it, and it had ten horns. Ten horns. Horns speaking of authority or power or nations. It had ten horns. Daniel 7 verse 8 says, While I was contemplating the horns, behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. And three of the first horns were pulled out by the roots before it. And behold, this horn possessed eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering great boasts. This awful beast that Daniel saw in Daniel chapter 7, in this prophecy... It was a, a revived world empire. Daniel saw it would be this revived empire that would grow out of the old roots of Rome. Now if you study the book of Daniel, you'll discover the little horn that crops up. Little horn is a description, is a name for Antichrist. And what Daniel's describing and has a hard time even understanding himself. You may recall this morning we said that the words in the book of Daniel, Daniel was told to seal them up. It was not even for Daniel to completely understand. They'd be opened up at the end time. Well, the story goes, or the, the vision that Daniel got, is that Antichrist would spring up at a time where there was a ten-nation nation confederation, and he would pluck out, he would rip out three by the roots and leave seven behind. This iron-toothed beast, revive Rome, ten horns, ten nations, comes along. And little horn, or Antichrist, plucks out three of the first ten nations by the roots. Daniel's prophecy tells us that this is what's going to happen in the time of tribulation. We're going to talk about this more further on into our Revelation study. We're going to see it described in a similar way in the book of Revelation. Ten nations and then three being ripped out and seven being left under the authority and the control and the rule of Antichrist. But it's interesting that when Joshua came back to the land, back in history, back in a day where something like this had already happened, there were only seven out of ten nations left. Seven of ten nations, in the same way that in the end time under Jesus, or when Jesus is about to come back into the land, seven of ten nations will be left. And it is one of many parallels. I'm going to show you a few more tonight. Jesus will retake the land. He will fulfill the land covenant, and ultimately he will parcel it out to the rightful heirs, the children of Israel, in the same way that Joshua would do so or did so historically. Yeshua will lead Israel back into the covenant land. At the end of the tribulation, why? Because he knows the way, because he's already done it. Now listen. Stay with me, because I'm throwing a lot out there real fast here at the beginning. Jesus has already conquered the promised land. He's already done it once. 
And you might say, oh, you mean figuratively, through Joshua. He gave Joshua the authority, right? He gave Joshua the power, right? Joshua is the one who led the children of Israel back into the promised land and conquered as they went, right? It was Joshua. Wrong. It was Jesus. He was there. He was there. He did it. I mean literally, Jesus fought the battle of Jericho. Look at Joshua chapter 5. Joshua chapter 5, verse 13. I came here for a revelation study tonight, Rick. Yeah, and we'll get there. <laughs> Joshua 5.13 says, It came about, when Joshua was by Jericho, that he lifted up his eyes and looked. And behold, a man was standing opposite him with his sword drawn in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. Well, this wasn't a yes or no question. This was an either or question. Are you for them or are you for us? No. He says, Rather I indeed come now as the captain of the host of the Lord. And Joshua, watch what he did, fell down on his face to the earth and bowed down. He worshipped. And he said to him, What has my Lord to say to his servant? Verse 15, The captain of the Lord's host said to Joshua, Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Does that ring a bell? The place where you're standing is holy. Moses? Take your sandals off your feet. You're in the presence of God, Moses. This is holy ground, Moses. Take your sandals off your feet and worship, for you're in the presence of God. And I submit to you that Joshua is as well. That this is another Christophany, an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ. He is here. Joshua's about to go in. He sees Jericho before him. He knows he's got a major battle on his hands. How do we win? And he sees this captain, this captain of the Lord's host. And this captain of the Lord's host promises, says, he wants to go before him. Jesus is the captain. He's not for, he's not against, he simply is. In other words, the point, Joshua, is not you. The point is not the people of Israel, and the point is not the people in the land of Canaan. The point is that this is God's will, and God is going to do what he's going to do. Are you with God? Are you with me, the Lord would say. And oftentimes in our Christian lives, isn't that kind of how we think? We look at God and say, oh, Lord, help me with this. And I think the captain of the Lord's host would say, I'm not for you. Are you for me? Are you for me? Will you go with me? I'll stand. I will be the captain. I will go before you if you will go behind me. Are you for me? And the captain obviously here accepts Joshua's worship when you see someone accepting worship in the scriptures in the place of God look carefully because angels say and you'll see this in Revelation angels say oh, I can't accept worship it's blasphemy don't worship me the angel will tell John later on don't worship me you worship God I'm just a servant like you but the captain of the Lord's host obviously sent by the Lord must be Jesus because he is worshipped and they are now standing on holy ground now I want you to see some things here Jesus gives Joshua the plan to conquer Jericho. And remember, seven nations. Seven nations are in place now. Three have been wiped out. The same will be true in the latter part of the tribulation. But watch this conquest of Jericho and keep in mind the seven trumpets of the tribulation. And we'll give you the seven quick specific similarities. Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 tells us, Joshua was tightly shut because of the sons of Israel. No one went out. and or, I'm sorry, Jericho was tightly shut. Because of the sons of Israel, no one went out and no one came in. 
And the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have given Jericho into your hand with its king and the valiant warriors. I love this battle plan. You shall march around the city, all the men of war, circling the city once, and you shall do so for six days. And Joshua's going, yeah, that'll intimidate them. This will be great. They're going to be shaken in their boots by the time we blast through those gates. Verse 4. Also, seven priests shall carry seven trumpets. And here's the first time we see seven trumpets in a seven-trumpet judgment. They'll carry seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. Then on the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priest shall blow the trumpet. Now, first thing you need to notice here is that the captain of the Lord's host sidesteps the law. What day is it that they were to blow the seven trumpets? It's on the Sabbath day. You're not to do any work on the Sabbath. And yet in this instance, with all authority, Sabbath was not made for man. Or man was not made for the Sabbath. Sabbath was made for man. Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath, the Bible tells us. And right here, the captain of the Lord's host says, No, you're going to war on this particular Sabbath. On the seventh day, you're going to go to war. You're going to fight. You're going to lift up these trumpets and blow. Gang, by the way, according to law, the ark was never to be taken into battle. Furthermore, they marched on the Sabbath, and this is also normally forbidden. These, I think, give us a hint or point toward the new law that would not be bound up in rules and regulation. But be that as it may, we read on. Joshua is thinking, okay, the seven priests are going to blow these seven trumpets on the seventh day, and man, this is going to be great. Then we're going to attack, right? Then we go in, right? It shall be that when they make a long blast with the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, all the people shall shout a great shout. Now the wall of the city will fall down and the people will go up every man straight ahead. What? You mean it's just going to, we're not even going to rock the walls or so we're just going to make noise? It's like throwing sticks. Are you kidding? This is going to work? Absolutely. This is the way God does things, not always the way man does things. But notice this, the second thing to notice. The servants of God, the servants of God are sealed before judgment falls. They're sealed before judgment falls. Well, what do you mean by that? Look back at chapter 5, verse 2. It says, At that time the Lord said to Joshua, Make yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of, Israel's, of Israel the second time. Oh, mama! Verse 8, going on, says, Now when they had finished circumcising all the nation, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. Thank you, Lord. Now, what's going on here? Circumcised for a second time, I think what's happening, I can't say this for sure, but I think what's happening is not a second circumcision of those circumcised, but now that the children of Israel finally, at this point it will be after 40 years of wandering, now that they're finally going to enter into the promised land, there's a whole generation of kids who apparently had not been circumcised. The job had not been done. The law that they had been given had not been followed, and God says, before I can lead you up, you need to be in covenant standing with me. Therefore, it's time to take care of the circumcision. I feel really bad for the 39-year-old guy who was just, just, you know, right under the wire. Oh, man. And so they were all circumcised, but the servants of God were sealed. They were sealed before this judgment, before this trumpet judgment would fall. And what happens to God's servants before the trumpet sound in the tribulation? Revelation chapter 7 verse 4 tells us, I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Compare this. Draw the line between the two. God's servants are to be sealed with a mark on their foreheads 
before this happens in the tribulation, before the trumpet judgments of the tribulation, before the trumpet judgments of Joshua's day, the servants of God, Joshua's men, were to be sealed with a mark on their four skins. And there's an important correlation here. You may say, Rick, I think your comparison is going a bit too far. Listen, Romans chapter 4 verse 11 tells us that Abraham received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had, which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. Okay, both sealings here, the sealing of circumcision and the sealing of, of God's servants on their forehead, both are a matter and a sign of faith. So in both instances, you have the servants are sealed before Joshua comes in to take the land. The servants of God, again, will be sealed before the trumpet judgments in the tribulation. Number three. Number three, the sound of judgment was a trumpet sound. Joshua chapter 6 verse 16 says the seventh time when the priests blew the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. And down in verse 20 it says the people shouted and the priests blew the trumpets. And when the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted with a great shout and the wall fell down flat so that the people went up into the city, every man straight ahead, and they took the city. Unconquerable Jericho fell that day. And Revelation chapter 11 verse 15, I'll just read this ahead to you, tells us that when the seventh angel sounded, there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And Revelation 11:19 says, And the temple of God, which is in heaven, was opened. And the ark of his covenant appeared in his temple. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder and an earthquake and a great hailstorm. When the seventh trumpet sounds in the tribulation, the walls of evil will fall. The power of the usurper will fail. And from that point forward in the tribulation, things do not bode well for Antichrist. Up to that point, in the battles of, of Armageddon, in the tribulation, and all that Antichrist is trying to do, from that point forward, the rug is pulled out from underneath him and he is scrambling to try and cause as much havoc as he possibly can before he is bound and thrown into the pit. But wait... There's more. Not only was the sound of judgment a trumpet sound for Joshua and a trumpet sound in the tribulation, but number four, the salvation. We see the salvation and suffering of Gentile converts. Gentile converts. You can look this up later. Joshua chapter 9. There's a story about a group of people called the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were in the promised land and they feared Israel and they feared Joshua and they had heard the stories. And so they were running scared and they said, we've got to figure out a way to be protected from Israel. So they sent a convoy of men. And what they did was they took their clothes and they ragged them up a bit and made it look as though they had been traveling a great distance, a great journey. And the Gibeonites came to Joshua and in essence they said, we've come from a far off land. We've heard about the fame of your God and we want to be your servants. We will, will you make a covenant with us not to destroy us, but to protect us? And Joshua, he agrees to do that. He makes this covenant. But after he makes the covenant, he discovers that the Gibeonites are not from a far land. They're from this land. And Joshua knew the Lord had called him and Israel to wipe out the land clean of all its inhabitants. But the Gibeonites were of that land. And so Joshua goes back to these locals who had deceived him. But because of the covenant, he says to them, Joshua chapter 9, he says, You can live, but you will be our servants in this land. You can live, 
but you'll be servants in the land. Gang, what happens to those who finally accept the Lord and, and become believers during the tribulation? They become servants. They're servants. They're saved, but they're servants nonetheless. Revelation 7.14, we looked at this last week or the week before. These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. For this reason they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And we drew a difference there. Those who are saved in the rapture of the church, those who go before the tribulation starts, the Bible tells us will rule and reign with Jesus. Those who are tribulation saints, who come to faith in Jesus during that tribulation period, are still saved, but like the Gibeonites, they are servants in the land. They are servants before the Lord. But there's a second story that follows in Joshua chapter 10. The king of Jerusalem at the time, and I know I'm giving you a lot of history, just hang in there with me. A man by the name of Adonai Zedek. Adonai Zedek. His name means the Lord of Righteousness, but he is far from it. He's an evil man with an evil intent. He's a false lord, and he is a picture of Antichrist in the book of Joshua. He sees the falling of Jericho. He sees the falling of the city of Ai. And he realizes the Gibeonites have now become servants of Joshua and Israel. So he decides he's going to take out the servants. He's going to rip the Gibeonites from the land. Just in the same way that Antichrist will declare war on those who try to stand for Yeshua in the tribulation. But watch what happens. Joshua chapter 10 verse 12. Joshua 10.12 says, Joshua spoke to the Lord in the day when the Lord delivered up the Amorites before the sons of Israel. And he said, in the sight of Israel, O sun, stand still at Gibeon, and O moon in the valley of Ayajalon. And so the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. Let me go back. I want to read you something else. I forgot about this. Verse 6. Going back to verse 6, Joshua chapter 10. You guys still following? Okay, good. Verse 6, Joshua 10 says, The men of Gibeon sent word to Joshua, to the camp of Gilgal, saying, Do not abandon your servants. Come up to us quickly and save us and help us. For all the kings of the Amorites that live in the hill country have assembled against us. So Joshua went up from Gilgal. He and all the people of war with him and all the valiant warriors. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not fear them. I have given them into your hands. Not one of them shall stand before you. So Joshua came upon them suddenly by marching all night from Gilgal. And the Lord confounded them before Israel. And he slew them with a great number at Gibeon. And pursued them by way of the ascent of Beth Horon. And struck them as far as Azekah and Makeda. And listen, as they fled, watch this. From before Israel, while they were at the descent of Beth Horon, the Lord threw large stones from heaven on them as far as Azekah, and they died. There were more who died from the hailstones than from those, than those whom the sons of Israel killed with the sword. You will see this in the trumpet judgments. We're almost there when we get there. Hailstones, stones, fire from heaven falling. In the exact same way that it does right here in the book of Joshua, the parallels are absolutely stunning. God is raining hailstones on the retreating armies of Adonai Zedek, the Lord of Righteousness, that false, that false leader, that false Lord of Righteousness, a picture again of Antichrist. And what's interesting is he goes on, and in verse 12, tells Joshua, or Joshua prays, sun stand still, and moon in the valley of Ayajalon, verse 13, so the sun stood still, and the moon stopped, until the nation avenged themselves of their enemies. 
Is it not written in the book of Jashar? And the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and did not hasten to go down for about a whole day, a day where the sun stood still. I won't get into it right now, but scientists tell us that in the tracking of things in the history of the world, there, there's a day missing. There's a day where it seems as though a, a day some kind, somehow didn't happen. And they have yet to try and figure that out. Well, the Bible tells us there was a day where the sun stood still. It was right here in Joshua chapter 10. Tells us in verse 14, there was no day like that before it or after it when the Lord listened to the voice of a man, for the Lord fought for Israel, and Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp of Gilgal. Now what's great about this is the Amorites who were being fought by Joshua and Israel were sun and moon worshippers. So who had the power? Who had the authority to stop the sun? Joshua prays, stop, O sun, Lord, stop the sun. The Lord, the God of, the, of Israel, stop the sun, and the sun stops. And these Amorites must have been absolutely terrified that the God of Israel did what their God could not do. Their God could not save them. The God of Israel did. So, number five in your note, if you're jotting these things down, these comparisons, there were great signs in the heavens. Signs in the heavens, under the trumpet judgments, under the judgment when Joshua and the people came into the land. Signs in the heavens, under the trumpet judgments, in the book of Revelation. And number six, the land then is sectioned out for Israel. In Joshua chapter 11 and following, the land is parceled out to the twelve tribes. Prophetically, you can read about this, just jot this down. Ezekiel 48 tells us the same thing will happen again for the people of Israel at the beginning of the millennial kingdom. At the end of all things, at the start of the millennium, God will parcel out the land. In the same way, Joshua parceled out the land, Yeshua. Yeshua will parcel out the land to the people of Israel at the beginning of the millennium. And number seven, it took exactly, exactly, exactly seven years for the people of Israel to drive all of the ice out of the land. The length of the tribulation in the book of Revelation is seven years. And Joshua and the people of Israel came in and within seven years had cleared the land. The parallels are amazing. Gang, history. History is for us to learn and understand. Not only to learn how to live now, but history is of value for us to learn what's coming future. Why? Because it's his story. Because God is the author of all things that have happened. And so much that we see, especially in biblical history, in the Old Testament, are pictures for us to understand what is to come. And so eventually we'll get to the book of Joshua in our Bible studies here at the bridge. And when we do, we're going to see how history repeats itself at the time of the end, even something that happened so long ago. God is working all this out right in front of our eyes. He is a great God. Gang, listen, it's important for, under, for us to understand that even before the fall of man, God knew. He knew our free will would lead us into rebellion. Are you guys getting hot in here? Anybody who's breaking into a sweat? You're not in the back yet, but some up front are. So, Yeah, let's, let's cut it off. And if you're, if you're still cold, grab a blanket. Yeah. We're about to get to nuclear war. We'll warm up a bit. <laughs> Okay, listen, I don't want you to miss this. With all this building up to this point, understand, before the fall of man, God knew that our free will was going to lead us into rebellion. He knew if he created a people with a will of their own, with a right to choose, that we would rebel. So how does a God, in his position over these people, how does he present himself to the people without compromising that all-important free will? Without taking away from them the right to choose? 
Gang, he devised a way to lead us back home without compromising that freedom. Amazing. He uses history as a textbook. He uses his word as a story. He gives us these visual, pictorial examples, the poetic, even the metaphorical that is grounded in true things that have happened so we can look at them and understand his grace, his mercy, understand what he has planned. Understand that this freedom is going to remain in place even during the millennial kingdom. Even during that millennial kingdom, that thousand year reign of Christ, there still will be free will. How do you know that, Rick? Because at the end of it, thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people will still rebel against Jesus. Even after having lived a thousand years in perfect peace. Why? Because that's what we do. Because the heart of man is rebellious. And at the end of that thousand year reign of peace in the millennial kingdom, people will be given the right to rebel against or receive the Lord of their own free will. And that's exactly how the book of Joshua ends. Joshua gathers all the people. He recounts Israel's histories and victories. And then he says in these famous words you probably have heard, Choose this day whom you will serve. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Israel, you've seen the Lord fight before you. You've seen the captain of the host go ahead of us. You've seen these other nations fall by the power of the might of God. You've seen the sun stand still. And you've seen signs and wonders in the sky. But now, Israel, choose this day whom you, have, whom you will serve. The choice is up to you. Jesus will do the same thing at the end of the millennium. It's a fascinating comparison. I wish we had more time to take a longer look at that. We'll look at it in future months. But right now, flip over to Revelation chapter 8. And let's look at the trumpet judgments that are promised to come. The trumpet judgments, beginning in verse 6, Revelation chapter 8. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Verse 7. The first sounded. And there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown down to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. This is the second global judgment gang. The first was the flood, which God promised He would never do again. He would never again flood the world with water. But now, in the end, comes the last global judgment, and you'll see that the judgment comes with fire. The Lord begins to use fire. And one third of the entire planet will fry and the overall effect will be absolutely devastating. Peter says it this way, 2 Peter 3.7 By his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and the destruction of ungodly men. It's interesting to notice that the first thing God created in the world was plant life. It was the first thing actually to be created on planet earth was plant life, it's also the first thing to be destroyed. A third of the earth, a third of the trees, all of the grass destroyed in this judgment. Now listen and think about this. It's possible that John at this time, as he's seeing these things, he's being given this vision that I've told you before, I believe he's actually watching it happen. I think the Spirit caught John forward into time to watch, to witness to these things. So what he's writing down is not just a vague picture, but this is reality. And he's describing it the best way that he can. 2,000 years ago, without the advent of the type of machinery and weaponry of war that we have now, John wouldn't know these things. And so he's describing what he's seeing with the best words that he possibly can. He's giving us insight into these things. And these trumpet judgments may very well describe a nuclear holocaust. 
and what would happen if nuclear war took place on planet Earth. Right now, there are vast nuclear arsenals all around the world. The U.S., the U.K., Russia, China, France, India, Pakistan, Israel. Others are fighting like crazy to get a hold of nuclear weapons. We're watching it go on right now. In fact, just this week, President Bush made a, a, a plan. I don't know exactly all the ins and outs of it, but a nuclear plan with India, not with Pakistan. They are border countries, they are border nations. That, that you probably watch the news, they fight an awful lot. Both are nuclear powers. And so the world tends to watch those two countries because if one tends to, wants to launch nuclear, the other will and they'll be wiped out. But it is some of these, these situations, these hotspots, they're not just a matter, Iraq is a bad situation right now, gang, but it's not nuclear. Not yet. Iran is totally going after nuclear weapons. That's what they want. That is at the heart of what they're doing. Oh no, we just want, we just want nuclear power for energy. And we want to wipe out Israel, but we won't use nuclear weapons to do it. And if you believe that, I've got some land in Arizona, beachfront property, to sell you down there. <laughs> nuclear holocaust. Gang, by the way, anytime Iran is talked about, you need to understand that in the Bible, that's Persia. It's biblical Persia. So any prophecy dealing with Persia would be talking about Iran today. Ezekiel goes in depth, talking a lot about Persia and what's going to happen there and things that are happening there, even as we speak. And understand this too, most Iranians, though Muslim, are not Arabic. Did you know that? They're Persian. Their roots go back into Persian culture and Persian race, not Arabic. The Arabs would be Saudi Arabia and coming up out of the Arabian Peninsula. But those living in Iran draw their roots not into the Arab world, but into Persia. A Persia that ultimately was conquered, Islam spreading out into the Middle East and becoming a Muslim nation. A, an extreme Muslim nation of, of mostly Shiites, but they are Persian by nationality. And John Corson makes an interesting point when talking about nuclear weapons. In the history of the world, there has never been a single time that a weapon has been devised by man that it hasn't been used. And so we are loaded up with nuclear power in this world. And the thought that it will only keep peace, I think we're fooling ourselves if we really believe that. If we have the weapon, when push comes to shove, we will use the weapon. And what happens when a nuclear weapon is detonated? Well, on March 1st, 1954, and this is a picture of it. I get there. A nuclear bomb was detonated on the, on the Bikini Atoll Islands off the Central Pacific. The United States went out there and we're doing testing. And by the way, if you're curious about this and, and interested in, in studying these things and in looking at these things, go online and just look up BikiniAtoll.com and, and you can read the history of what happened, of the nuclear testing, and the fact that the people who lived in those areas even now are just starting to move back there. Who was I talking to this morning about this? I forget. Someone was making a comment about that people are trying to move back there and they, they just shouldn't eat the coconuts. That would be a bad idea right now. Because of the nuclear fallout and all that was left. But listen, March 1st, 1954, following the Great War, following World War II, in the Bikini Atoll Islands, which are the Marshall Islands of the Central Pacific, we test exploded a nuclear bomb, two of them actually, said to be a thousand times more powerful than the, the bombs that were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I'll read you a description. The area was illuminated by a huge and expanding flash of blinding light. 
A raging fireball of intense heat that measured into the millions of degrees shot skyward at a rate of 300 miles an hour. Within minutes, the monstrous cloud filled with nuclear debris shot up more than 20 miles and generated winds hundreds of miles per hour. These fiery gusts blasted the surrounding islands and stripped the branches and coconuts from the trees. And gang, the first trumpet judgment describes sweeping fire. Hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down from heaven. Sweeping fire as in a nuclear blast. In fact, it's estimated that the detonation of one of our mid-sized nuclear weapons, just a mid-sized, we're not talking about one of the big bad boys, but one of our mid-sized nuclear weapons that the U.S. owns right now, if we were to detonate that, it would cause a massive firewall, which literally would move at the speed of 250 to 300 miles per hour to a range of 1,000 square miles, which means one blast of one medium-sized nuke and within four hours, everything within a thousand square miles decimated by this incredible moving firewall. You could even see it coming, but you could not run. You could not hide. It would overtake everything in its path and wipe everything out. And you might say, well, that's interesting. The, 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 the fire, I, I can understand, but where's the hail come from? How does hail figure into this? Interesting, when we were testing the nukes in the Bikini Islands, something unexpected happened. All that heat and water shot up thousands of feet up into the air and froze in the elevated atmospheres and came down and pounded some of our destroyers that were in nearby waters with huge hailstones that froze up in the sky. Hailstones and fire mixed with blood and I think we can probably guess as to what the blood is. That's kind of obvious. Hail, fire, blood. John's watching this and he's saying, what is this? What is this? He could only describe what he saw with his own eyes. Verse 8, the second angel sounded. And something like a great mountain with fire. <laughs> we just got, we've got to look at this again. Something like a great mountain of fire. <coughs> he says, was burning with fire, it was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. There's a subtle language change here, by the way. Always notice these things in the book of Revelation. John says something like. Now I said earlier on, take the book literally unless John tells you otherwise. If John describes something and he says, uh, you know, the first angel sounded and, and there came hail, fire mixed with blood, then you can count on it. There's going to be hail and fire mixed with blood. That's what it is. But in the second sounding of the, of the trumpet, the second angel sounds and it's something like. So John's saying, it looked to me like a massive mountain of fire landing in the sea. That's, that's what it looked like. I'm not sure that's what it was, but that's what it looked like to me. Second trumpet, something like a great burning mountain. Today, a third of the earth is covered over by water. One third. No, I'm sorry, three fourths. I lied. Three fourths of the world is covered by water, and a third of this is contained in one region, the Atlantic Ocean. Imagine the entire Atlantic Ocean gone. Completely wiped out. Everything in, a third of all the creatures dead, a third of the water on earth gone. The Atlantic completely decimated. And some have guessed that that's exactly what's being talked about here, that it will be the Atlantic Ocean, which roughly is a third of the world's water in terms of ocean. And at any given time, by the way, roughly a third of all the world's ships are in the Atlantic region. 
So a third of the water is gone, a third of the ships that are in that same region, gone, wiped out, completely destroyed. Again, a nuclear exchange in this region could, region could cause all this. Well, going on in verse 10, the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star, interesting, is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died, many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. Trumpet number three now sounds. The star Wormwood falls and creates bitter water. Continuing on with this nuclear concept, nuclear detonation does more than simply explode and burn. If you know anything about nuclear testing, again, back in the testing in the atolls, we learned some things. One was the unexpected result of the hailstones that damaged all kinds of equipment and seriously damaged some, some ships out in the water at the time. But the other one was a yield of a substance, a substance called strontium-90. Strontium-90, which poisons huge areas of water around the nuclear test site, being strontium-90 did not exist before 1954. It was an offshoot of this nuclear blast, this substance. It's a poisonous, radioactive isotope. I was telling someone this morning, if you hear me talk about isotopes or scientific things, it's because I read it somewhere else. Okay? I don't know what even that really means. But I know that it's a poisonous, radioactive isotope. It didn't even exist on the Earth before the late 50s, early 60s. And we found it after those nuclear blasts as a result of those nuclear blasts. It's still detectable in regions around the world where nuclear testing has taken place. Strontium-90 has a half-life of 29.1 years that it remains. It also acts and reacts like calcium, so when it gets into the human body, if you were to drink it, drink water that was poisoned by strontium-90, it gets into the human body, it heads for the bones and the teeth, and it begins to rot away. This, among other bitter poisons, would literally render fresh water not only undrinkable, but deadly. And so as this angel sounds and this great star falls from heaven, this burning like a torch and it fell in a third of the rivers and the springs of water, the fresh waters are now bitter, not only to drink, but they're deadly to drink. And then John gives the name of the star, gives the star a name. He says it's called Wormwood. Wormwood. I think this is fascinating. According to Vincent's word studies in the New Testament, the name Wormwood is used metaphorically in the Bible as follows. Deuteronomy 29.18 It's the result of Israel's rebellion, which is bitterness. God says your rebellion will bring about Wormwood. That same word is used. It's also in Jeremiah 9.15 and 23.15 and Lamentations 3.15 and 19. You just jot these down, look at them later. It's a description of calamity and sorrow. This title, this name Wormwood, speaks of calamity, of sorrow. It's a bad thing. And in Amos chapter 5, verses 6 and 7, Wormwood is a portrait of injustice. Let me read this to you. Amos 5, verse 6. Seek, seek the Lord that you may live, or he will break forth like a fire, O house of Jacob. And it will consume with none to quench it for Bethel, for those who turn justice into wormwood and cast righteousness down from the earth. And this may be indicating God's justice against mankind's injustice. Why would you call the star wormwood? Because it's a picture of injustice. And it's God saying, I will judge every injustice that has ever taken place on the planet. Injustice happens right and left. We watch it on the news. It's probably happened to you. Unjust, unfair things. 
Things that are not right that shouldn't have happened to you, you didn't deserve them. And God very clearly will judge all things unjust. And it may be happening right here with the blast of the third trumpet. Judgment for the injustice of the world. By the way, um, those of you who are Russian believers in Christ, if you've got your Russian Bible with you, you might want to look again at this passage. Because if you were reading a Russian Bible right now, you would look down and you wouldn't see the word wormwood here. There's a different word for it in Russian. The word is Chernobyl. Chernobyl. Fascinating. And by the way, that was just a little leak. I mean, that wasn't a nuclear blast that happened in Chernobyl. That was a reactor failure, some problems that they had there, and it was awful. And the Russian word is the word wormwood. Same thing. Interesting. Gang, by the way, side note, for you and me today, there is only one possible uh, cure, if you would, for wormwood. One cure for bitterness in our lives. We talked about it recently, Exodus 15, verses 22 through 25, tells us that Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days into the wilderness, and they found no water. And they came to a place called Marah, but they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. And therefore it was named Marah, so the people grumbled at Moses, and they said, well, what should we drink? The water is Marah, the water is bitter. And he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, a tree. And he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. And the only cure for bitterness in our lives is the tree that makes our lives sweet. I'm talking about the tree of Calvary, the cross. The cross is what solves or saves us from bitterness in our lives. How so, Rick? Because, gay, you cannot stand at the foot of the cross. You cannot look into the eyes of a dying Savior and maintain bitterness in your heart toward a brother and sister. You can't do it. The cross heals us, cures us of our wormwood. And isn't it interesting, one of the most graphic portrayals of the cross is Psalm 22 in the Bible. Jesus, in this picture, in Psalm 22, this amazing prophecy, read through it, talks about his bones being out of joint, talks about him being pierced. And Psalm 22, verse 6, he says, I am a worm and not a man, a reproach of men and despised by the people. And so Jesus became as a worm on the wood. He took on our bitterness, our wormwood. He was despised and rejected on the cross to save us from the bitterness of our sin, from the bitterness of broken relationships. And so if you suffer from bitterness in your life, you need to turn to the cross. Consider Jesus there, for he will sweeten what we can only maintain as bitter. But even the sweetness of the cross gang will not save a Christ-rejecting world from the bitter judgment of this meteoric star. Verse 12 going on, the fourth angel sounded... The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night the same way. So trumpet number four blows, and we have the striking of the sun, and the moon, and the stars. Jesus talked about this, Matthew 24, verse 29 said immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky. The powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then, after this, the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, for they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. The good news is, the great news is for those who are believers... And on earth, at the time, while this is happening, they will begin to understand all these horrible things are happening, but the sign of the Son of Man, He's coming. He will be here soon. 
This is not going to go on much longer. The glorious appearing of Jesus is soon to come. But there is more bad news yet to come before it. At this point, in the tribulation, the sun, moon, and stars are struck. And if you read this carefully, what it says, what it's talking about, is a reduction of the output of light on planet Earth by 33%. Interesting, in the Northwest, we get a little depressed around wintertime. Especially when winters are long and they drag on and we get a lot of those really gray days. And those sunshiny days come out and we all just, isn't it amazing how much energy suddenly we have? Oh, it's sun shining. Let's get out. Let's do something. Let's fix the house. Let's drive. The, let's go somewhere. Let's do things here. But when it's gray, oh, it's, it's hard to work. It's hard just to get up. You know those days, you look out the window and you know you have to be at work and it's just, oh, you feel lethargic. And imagine it being like that all the time. Imagine removing 33% of the light that we have in the world today and it's completely gone. And this may well describe the phenomena referred to as a nuclear winter. A reduction of 33% of the light on planet Earth. Scientists say that in nuclear winter the high temperature in the summer on the west coast during the day would be about 50 degrees. High temperature. In the summer. Now, I grew up in Southern California, and a 50-degree day in August is unheard of. In fact, a 50-degree day most of the time is unheard of in Southern California. But that would be the highest. Crops would have trouble growing. Starvation would ensue. Power would fail. The resulting of a nuclear explosion would be absolutely devastating. We all know this. But John is describing something here that fits very well into that category of nuclear catastrophe. It's a stunning portrait of what would happen if we entered into a global, worldwide nuclear holocaust. Now, we have one more verse and we'll stop tonight. But we need to think about and process something here. And the question that comes up, and you may even be thinking this ahead of time, is, is this man's nuclear war or God's divine judgment? Which is it? If what we're reading is man's nuclear war, then it's really not divine judgment. You know, John says that a trumpet sounded and hail, fire mixed with blood came down, that this burning mountain came down. But if man is doing this to man, how can we say that it's divine judgment? Well, think this through with me. As we've already seen in Revelation chapter 6, Jesus alone had the authority to break each and every seal. It was because Jesus breaks the seals, or will be because he breaks the seals, that each one of those sealed judgments happens. But those sealed judgments don't happen necessarily by the hand of Christ, but he does allow or break the seal causing it, opening the floodgate for it to happen. And so in that way, I would submit that it is Jesus who's in authority over those things, that it is the wrath of the Lamb, as the end of that chapter tells us. It's through the agency of war and famine and death. They all seem to follow and and be connected to Antichrist, but Jesus is in control. Same thing in the case of the trumpet judgments. Each judgment follows the sounding of a trumpet by God's directed angels. And this chapter, yet poetically and powerfully, looks like that picture of global nuclear war. But again, the question, is it man's war or is it God's judgment? And the answer is, it's both. Because God often and has historically used human agency to affect divine judgment. Human agency to affect divine judgment. He used the human agency of Israel to divinely judge the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. 
They were the point of the sword, as it were, for the Lord. He sent them in to exact His judgment. It wasn't Joshua's judgment. It wasn't the judgment of the people of Israel. It was God's judgment on the people living in the promised land at the time. But it was humans who carried it out. Furthermore, he used the Amorites to judge northern Israel when they rebelled against God. He sent the Amorites in to take out northern Israel. And you might look at it at the time, you might be one of the northern Israelites watching this horrific takeover of the land by the Amorites and be crying out, God, how could you allow this to happen? God, save us, not realizing it was the Lord who was exacting judgment on them for their idolatry. Or furthermore, God used Babylon to judge the southern kingdom of Judah, to carry them into captivity. This was not Nebuchadnezzar who did it, it was God. Listen to this, Jeremiah 25 verse 9. He says, I will send to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, and he calls him my servant, and I will bring them against this land and against its inhabitants and against all these nations round about. I will utterly destroy them and make them a horror and a hissing and an everlasting desolation. God calls Nebuchadnezzar his servant. He says, Nebuchadnezzar may think he's the king of the world. He may think he's in charge. He may think he's the big boss, but it's me. And by the way, if you study the book of Daniel, you find out pretty quickly Nebuchadnezzar learns that lesson the hard way. Nebuchadnezzar later in his life goes absolutely insane by the decree of Daniel the prophet because that's what God declares would happen. And after he comes out of his insanity, he praises God as the only God. Did you know Nebuchadnezzar might be in heaven? He might be a believer? Because the last words we have recorded of this great king is there is no other God but the king of heaven. So he learned his lesson the hard way. He was simply a human agent of divine judgment. And do you suppose that for all his divine warnings, again, there were Jews traveling to Babylon who could not imagine how God could allow this horror to happen to them. But the truth is, it was his judgment. He didn't just allow it. He brought it about. He caused it. The prophets, such as Jeremiah, made that absolutely clear ahead of time. The people of Israel, had they listened to Jeremiah, who was called the weeping prophet because nobody did listen to him, had they listened to him, would have understood. In fact, they could have repented and avoided the judgment altogether. God could have, would have, protected them against Nebuchadnezzar. But they rebelled. Their hearts were cold. Their hearts were hard. Gang, it's why, in a large part, saved Christians should read and heed the book of Revelation today. Why we should be studying these things. Why is that? Because our understanding of the wrath of God, listen to me, our understanding of the wrath of God is absolutely critical to our witness of the grace of God. We need to understand His wrath as much as we understand His grace. It is in understanding His wrath that we see the magnitude of His grace and can share His grace with people. For his wrath is what's deserved, but his grace is what he wants to give. His wrath is what we've earned. His grace is the gift that he is handing out, that he is offering to all people. And for our study tonight, we would be negligent if we sat here and read these things compared to the book of Joshua and the judgment that happened there. If we looked at all this, considered God's wrath, and just went, whoa, that's awesome, dude. <laughs> or if we just said, whoa, check out the fireworks. Or, whoa, God's like steamed up. Look at verse 13. I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, whoa, whoa. 
Woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. In other words, you think this is bad? You haven't seen anything yet. Woe to those who are on earth for the things that are about to come. The last three trumpets that are going to blast. You think this is not even close. This eagle, the Bible says, flying in mid-heaven. Some translations say eagle, some say angel. Both translations work fine for me. What do you mean? Which one is it, eagle or angel? Well, I tend to think that it's both. Because it's not unusual for an angel to look like an eagle. What is one of the four faces of the cherubim? It's an eagle. And so what John looks up and sees, and now he calls an angel an angel, but he sees this this eagle, this creature of of some sort, angel, eagle, eagle, angel, I'm not sure which it is, but flying around in mid-heaven and saying these things, and regardless of what you think exactly it is, the creature is definitely heaven-sent. And the creature cries out with a loud voice. The word here in the Greek is phone megali. Put it together the other way, megaphone. So you got an angel with a megaphone going, inhabitants of planet Earth, whoa, whoa, whoa. Three woes are coming. Three woes. You think it's been bad? You think this nuclear global holocaust, this blast, these firewalls going out and destroying a third of planet Earth, you think this is bad? It's getting worse. It's getting much, much worse. By the way, it's interesting. Jesus says in Matthew 24, verse 27, just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And then he says this interesting phrase. He says, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. But the word is not vulture. The word is aetos in the Greek. The word is eagle. The word is eagle. Where the corpses are, there the eagle will gather. And so we see right here, all of the death, all of the fire, all of the destruction. And what happens immediately? There's an eagle in the sky. There's a vulture-like creature. You know, by the way, that eagles are vultures. They're beautiful. We love to see them flying around Whidbey and Fidalgo Island. Those beautiful eagles, lovely bald eagles. But they're vultures. They're scavengers. They would pluck Reggie off of my porch if given a half second to do so. There are days I think he deserves it. (laughs) But the last three trumpet blasts, again, they're called woes. The Greek word for woe is ou-i, or oive, I guess you could put it that way. (laughs) The word literally means horror. And so what this angel eagle is shouting is horror, horror, horror. What's coming is a horror. Now, I'm not trying to be a prophet of doom and gloom, and we're not trying to just be negative as we study and read these things, but this is the way it must be with the God of the Bible, because wrath, gang, is mandated by God's very nature. His very nature absolutely commands that there must be wrath for sin. There must be. There is no alternative. Dave Hunt in the book Judgment Day says the following. He says, we can't buy God off. He doesn't negotiate with us or work out any special deals. His perfect, holy justice must be satisfied. The penalty must be paid. Yet, God also loves every person deeply enough to find a way to forgive man righteousness or to forgive man righteously and you know the way. You know how he did it. John puts it perfectly. John the Baptist, he said in John 3.36, He who believes in the Son 
has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides in him. Ultimately, we have a choice. And the choice is we can go through the wrath. You have that option. I have that choice. I can accept God's wrath. I can say, I'm going to try and stand against those firewalls of wrath when they come. I can do that. Or, I can go to the one who went through the wrath for me, and that is Jesus. And that's the power of the, of the message of God's wrath versus His grace. Because when you and I talk about the wrath of God, we're talking about the wrath that He poured out on Jesus on the cross. As bad as all this is, and it's going to get worse in our studies, as bad as it is, it is not as bad as the wrath Jesus took that was completely poured out on Him. Someone says, why do you think you're not going to go through the tribulation? Because Jesus did. Because He said, if you will believe in Me, you will not go through the wrath because I went through it for you. Why? It makes no sense to me. The whole idea, by the way, of purgatory makes absolutely no sense in light of God's grace. Either you have grace or you don't. If I can work even one iota of my salvation out, then forget grace, it's unnecessary. But I have to have grace to be saved. You have to have grace to be saved, don't you? And it's what he did on the cross. He took that complete outpouring of wrath. When we talk about the wrath of God, gang, the first thought in your mind should be the cross. Which is why it motivates me to talk about grace with other people. Someone says, Rick, I just... Like I said this morning, I don't deserve it. I I shouldn't be here. I don't go to church because I'm just not good enough. Well, that's why I go to church. That's why I'm in this fellowship. That's why I open the Bible, because I'm just not good enough, and I never will be. But you see, Jesus is perfect. And He went through the fires of wrath and judgment for me. And again, this is what separates Christianity from every other religion on the face of the earth. Islam? Choose Islam. And it's how many good works versus how many bad works have you done. And actually it's worse than that. It's how many people have you killed in the the name of Allah. Choose any other religion and you've got to work for it. It's the number one sign, by the way, of the cults. Work. Works-based righteousness. Gang. Even at our best, the wrath of God is woeful, but Jesus paid the debt. Fully, completely. And I can't add to it And I can't take away from it. All I can do is accept it or reject it. And that choice is ours. Father, we thank you for your grace. Oh Lord, thank you that even as we read about these horrifying things, these judgments that will be poured out, whether Lord it is by nuclear war or by supernatural causes, Father, it's still judgment. It's still, we see you exacting wrath on a people who have rejected Christ. And I'm thankful, Father, that we are not that people. I'm horrified for them. And God, if there's a single person I know on the face of this planet today, I pray that you will raise my voice in the name of Jesus for them. That nobody would have to go through this. But because the word is perfect, we know there are going to be those who do. We know, Father, that some are going... Father, some are going to choose to rebel, choose to reject you, and choose to deny all of your perfection and your grace. Lord, give us a voice anyway, and help us to speak the name of Jesus. Thank you for your word in Jesus' name.